I kind of had a choice at that point, not just being patient with the process, but being grateful with the process. And I'm like, mm, man, I went to my dad straight after the game. I'm like, yo, like this shit can't happen anymore, man. I always find the, always try to take the good out of any negative situation. You know, I have players coming in, Xavier, and they'd be like, um, you know, I played so bad. You know, sometimes I'd, I'd be like, hey, bro, hey, I don't know, we, we can't do nothing about that. I can tell you what we can do, we can get some work in right now. Like, if you're not doing plyometrics, you're losing out on a lot of potential for performance. Um, my dad had these tapes of the Laker games. Got to a point where I, I said, you know, I want to play basketball. And I just always wanted to make sure I had the edge over people. It became a part of me, you know, I, I didn't want anybody to get to be better than me. Welcome back to another episode of the Basketball and Barbells podcast. Returning back to season three, we actually have our second guest, uh, and I'm really, really thankful that uh, he responded to my LinkedIn message. messages. Uh, today, we have Adam Petway, who is a basketball performance coach, currently serving as a men's basketball strength and conditioning coach, the director um, at University of Louisville. He's worked as a basketball performance coach for the last 12 years, stops in the NBA, include the 76ers and the Washington Wizards, and also served previously as a director of strength conditioning at Arkansas. Uh, by the way, he's also the co-author of Basketball Mechanics, which pretty much every basketball strength and conditioning coach is reading right now, currently available almost everywhere and especially on Amazon. I just make sure uh, I link that at the very end of this episode in our notes. But Adam, I just want to say thank you so much for, for coming on, man. Oh, Xavier, I appreciate you having me. You know, I, I've been keeping up with what you're doing. And I think that the concept of, you know, basketball and barbells is definitely uh, applicable in, in my environment. And I, I absolutely love the work you're currently doing, man. So I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure, man. Um, and like, like we kind of touched on this before, before you started recording, I was just telling, telling you, you know, I'm just, I'm thankful that I was able to get someone who's kind of looking at basketball and strength and conditioning in a different lens. Uh, so for me, getting into that, the whole basketball mechanics later on, that's something that I'm going to hopefully be able to nerd out about. But before we get into that, for those who are listening, uh, may not be privy to kind of your experience. Can you talk a little bit about your journey? You can start, you know, maybe what kind of pushed you into working in strength and conditioning in this sector. And then, you know, specifically, what kind of pushed you to develop a niche with basketball specifically? No, you know, that's a great question. You know, my, my journey is kind of a nonlinear one, and I don't, I don't necessarily think a traditional path. Um, you know, I actually started as a, as a high school basketball coach and strength and conditioning coach in Birmingham, Alabama. And I've coached pretty much on every level of basketball you can, all the way from like high school to D3 to, to the NBA, now back in college. But, uh, you know, wor working with those ninth grade uh, boys, I was the head coach. And then mm -hmm. I was the director of strength and conditioning for all of the high school basketball. Um, it, it just taught me a lot. And what I found really is that, you know, I love the physical preparation and development more so than I did necessarily just the tactics of the X's and O's. Right. So, mm -hmm. you know, after, after a couple of years at John Carroll Catholic high school, um, which has a good tradition there in Birmingham, Alabama, um, I just started writing letters and emails to people seeing like, Hey, you know, can, can I come and, you know, maybe be uh, a strength and conditioning coach for basketball? What does that look like? Um, mm -hmm. Because at the time, it was fairly new. Like, you know, you had, 
you know, Todd Wright doing some really great things at the University of Texas. You had Andrea Hootie. I believe she was actually probably still at UConn and just transitioned to Kansas at the time. So this idea of a full-time basketball strength coach was somewhat like novel concept, right? So I I emailed pretty much every D3, D2, JUCO in the country. And, uh, you know, out of, you know, probably 500 emails got maybe a handful of responses. And uh, one one school that gave me an opportunity was uh, Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., um, and, mm-hmm. and there, my role was kind of reversed, right? Like I, I was the um, assistant coach, right? So I was responsible with scouting, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, recruiting, a lot of the operation stuff that, that you have to do on, you know, on the D3 level. So you kind of wore a lot of hats, but I also was the head strength coach for men's basketball there, right? So it, mm-hmm. it gave me a, a good perspective of kind of behind the scenes and then what, you know, tactical coaches uh, thought processes are because I was in the meetings, uh, I was in recruiting meetings, uh, you know, I was going to like fundraising events and things like that, that, you know, a lot of strength coaches probably aren't privy to. So it really has helped oh, yeah. me in my development. Um, if, you know, from there, I decided I wanted to go all in on strength and conditioning. You know, I loved, you know, the, the tactical part, but I knew mm-hmm. that, you know, the physical preparation and the performance aspect is really what I wanted. So you know, again, just being local there in D.C., uh, you know, I emailed all of the local colleges and there's a guy that responded to my email uh, named Ben Kenyon. And he, mm-hmm. he's, uh, he was uh, the director of strength and conditioning for George Washington at the time. He's actually currently the head strength coach for the Philadelphia 76ers. So just being really lucky and having those mentors early in my career was really important. And, you know, Ben was the first coach like, you know, he he programmed in Excel, like he knew like movement patterns of the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he, he was definitely the first like real deal strength coach I had the opportunity to learn from. And uh, I, I'm still grateful for that, you know, to this day. Um, you know, from there, I went to the University of Maryland and got connected with a guy named Kyle Tarp. And uh, just what an amazing mentor in person. And he actually learned under Todd Wright. Mm -hmm. at the University of Texas and uh, you know he he taught me so much about you know specificity of movement and you know how to train a basketball athlete relative to the demands of the sport Um, and I actually spent two years with him his first two years um, you know at Maryland just learning and growing and really just like uh, refining you know my skill set and uh, from, from there, I went to the University of Arkansas. And my first year at Arkansas, I was actually an assistant um, for a guy named Dave Dietz, um, who, uh, again, just being real lucky, unbelievable thinker and coach, and really, like, you know, uh, had, had a really cool thought process on how he integrated a lot of models and mm-hmm. what he was doing down there. Um, yeah, and just being lucky where I was at, you know, he, he moves on to take a different job, and I, I step in the role. And I was there for five years at the University of Arkansas, um, you know, and Coach Anderson, who's now the head coach at St. John's University, mm-hmm. uh, just an unbelievable human being and, and just what a great mentor to be around. You know, he's great coach, great person. You know, he really demanded a lot of the kids and wanted them to work hard, but he knew how to kind of bring it in. So he, he definitely taught me just so much about, uh, you know, being a professional and what that looked mm-hmm. like. So definitely grateful for that opportunity. Um, and then after, after my five years at Arkansas, I actually got a call from Todd Wright. Uh, he was 
you know, the, one of the first names that kept coming up in basketball strength and conditioning. So I'd reached out, I've stayed in touch. We knew a lot of mutual people. Um, and he just called me one day and said, Hey, you know, the Sixers are looking to invest in biomechanics. We're trying to build out certain models that, you know, are trying to help us make more informed decision on our athletes. Like, you know, right. your name keeps popping up in my circles. Would you be interested? And, uh, you know, I think I had just started my PhD in biomechanics at that point. And I was like, man, what an unbelievable opportunity. My wife's from Philadelphia. We're having our first kid. So it's kind of like going back home. But I also get mm -hmm. to learn from a, you know, first class organization and with first class people. I mean, there was just so many talented people um, there within that organization my first year. I mean, you had guys like, you know, Todd Wright and Tador Pandoff, uh, who's now the head strength coach uh, in the NBA. Mm -hmm. uh, Cliff Spiller was our G League strength coach. He's now the head strength coach at Oregon. Yeah. Uh, you know, Jesse Wright had been a strength coach for 14 years in the NBA. He was our director of sports science. Um, our director of performance science, Dr. David Martin, unbelievable thinker, unbelievable person and human being to learn from. I mean, probably one of the smartest people I've been around up to this mm -hmm. point. Um, you know, Scott Epsley was a, a tactician as far as a, a physiotherapist. So, so many great people to, to learn from mm -hmm. and to have the opportunity to be around. Um, so my two years there, I, I'm just very grateful. Um, mm -hmm. You know, a lot of the stuff I, I was doing was in, in biomechanics and trying to uh, refine my skill set there. But I also had my hand a little bit in, uh, you know, some training and return to play and things of that nature. Um, you know, from there, uh, post bubble. So I, after we got back from, from the bubble in 2000, I got a call from DC, um, and, uh, they were looking for a director of athletic performance. And luckily, you know, uh, I had lived in DC previously. I was familiar with the area and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, while I was at the university of Maryland, one of my best friends was down there and who was actually my co-author of basketball mechanics Ryan Richmond. So he was an assistant coach for the Washington Wizards. Um, so I was kind of back and forth. I wasn't sure if I wanted to leave home or not. You know, uh, being in Philadelphia was a good situation for my family, but I decided to take it. And uh, my year with Ryan there, you know, I'm really thankful for it. You know, we collaborated on a lot of different topics, uh, was around a lot of really good people. Um, but, you know, during the season, found out we were having our second kid. My wife was still in Philadelphia. So I actually, mm -hmm. um, I went and uh, went back to the Philly area. And last year I was uh, coaching track and field. Uh, so I was the horizontal jumps coach at uh, Westchester University. I mm -hmm. coached long jump and triple jump. And during my time at Arkansas, you know, I think in the 2016 Rio Olympics, we had eight student athletes in track and field, not, not post-collegiate, but kids that were in school that like were Olympians, like Omar McLeod. Oh, wow was a gold medalist in the hurdles. Sandy Morris, she was the gold medalist in the pole vault. Jerrion Lawson, um, just like the list just goes on and on. Of mm -hmm. not, not kids like Tyson Gay or Wallace Spearman right. or Monica, not post-collegiate. These were kids that were taking classes and Incredible. <laughs> yeah, so, so I got exposed to a lot of really good track and field athletes. And I was like, hey, you know, I'll, I'll try my hand at track and field. And I really love, like, you know, Westchester is a D2 school. There's a lot mm -hmm. of really good resources in the, the, the kinesiology department. So I was like, I'll try my hand in this. Um, and I actually got a text, you know, uh, April and May. And, um, 
you know, the coaches at Louisville were looking for a basketball person, but mm-hmm. somebody that had a track and field background, you know, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> crazy. Mean, yeah. So it's crazy how that works out. Right. So like I, I stepped away from the NBA um, just to dive into a passion I've always had in speed power. But that actually led me down to this path where I'm currently at at the University of Louisville. So it's just funny how things work out. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and one, just kind of uh, backtrack a little bit. It's funny because you you mentioned um, like Cliff, you mentioned Todd and, and all great people. Cliff is actually a good friend of mine. I actually, um, I think he's with the Jazz, if I'm not mistaken, last time I talked to him. But it's it's just a, incredible, like you said, just in Philadelphia and Jesse Wright's also, you know, just good person. I've been, I've reached out to before, um, yeah. but it's, it's, it's crazy to me to like really sit there and, and think back to all the, the talented people that were all in one organization and now are doing amazing things on their own. Um, but even just kind of like your background, right. Getting into it as far as like the tactical side, as far as coaching. Right. I think that's, that's something that is never, oh, not, not as common, right. Is coaches that have the understanding of kinesiology, sports science, but also strength and conditioning coaches who don't understand kind of like more of the tactical side, or even just, like you said, the nuances of skill development. Um, so the fact that you kind of like had both and you were even working in recruiting and things like that, um, it's something similar to me. I started as a basketball trainer, uh, just working on skill development. Uh, I actually got hurt. So then I had to kind of start picking up some some sports science books to kind of rehab myself. And that's how I kind of fell into it. But I still appreciated the the nuances of, hey, when you're coming off uh, this pick and roll, this is, you know, where your feet are, this is how you set your feet and, and things like that. And as a player, it's always easier. And I believe it's the same thing with you. There's like a different level of, I don't want to say credibility, but, you know, the players are able to a little bit more relate to what you're saying, what you're telling them because they can get that buy-in because you've been there, right? And you actually know how to actually explain this in a way that makes it relative to them. So to me, I just, it's incredible. I actually didn't know that background. Of you. I can, you, you can easily go on like LinkedIn and listen to these other podcasts. But for me, like that, that just totally stands out. Um, during your time when you were recruiting and doing all those things, was there ever kind of like that, I know you said you wanted to do the performance, was that internal, uh, I guess, struggle where you're like, man, this is a lot. I'm wearing too many hats. Uh, no, nah, I, maybe, you know, at the time, you know, you're doing a lot. And I also like train people on the side, you know, just mm-hmm. the D three life isn't the most lucrative, but looking back, like I'm very appreciative of my time, you know, mm-hmm. on that level. Cause it gives me perspective on, you know, maybe the prism of what a tactical or a technical coach might look at, you know, mm-hmm. and that really increases dialogue. Like you mentioned, like, Hey, you know, what projections you want off the ball screen or, Hey, how do you yep. want to set up a dribble handoff or, Hey, like how, what angle are we, you know, using to set this ball screen? So mm-hmm. I, I think just different things like that, it really kind of adds a layer of uh, communication and a layer of development in, you know, and, and I'm really appreciative of my time on that level for sure. Yeah. And kind of speaking to that, like technical, tactical side, um, even like in the weight room, like, it's funny because like we'll talk to you know the players in there depending on the level but for the most part at least in my experience um i'm trying to break down hey this is what we're doing today it's almost like almost one year out the other at times but then you're saying hey look the reason why i'm doing this is because i need health for x y and z reasons it's going to make you do x y and z on the court and all of a sudden all right that that level of buy-in goes up like almost 100 percent because now they're like oh okay it makes it relatable to them 
Um, do you feel like other like more strength and conditioning coaches don't have to necessarily have the background that maybe you or I have, but should they get more involved in the technical and tactical side of things to kind of uh, increase that level of communication like you talked about, maybe even uh, help with the buy-in with the athletes and the coaching staff? Yeah, you know, I, I think the level of involvement they have with that is, you know, relative to their skill set, right? Mm -hmm. um, also to their level of comfort. I, I don't think necessarily, you know, a strength coach should be out on the court, like, you know, coaching drills in practice. Or yeah, absolutely. Plays, but they should definitely have a concept of what the coach's vision is for each athlete. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important because um, it, it kind of will dictate how you train the athlete, right? Like it might mm -hmm. not you know, from sets and reps and exercises, it may not dictate, you know, what you're doing specifically in the weight room. Mm -hmm. um, or should I say like in a general physical preparation um, sense, mm -hmm. but as you transition and, you know, if, if you have a guy that's a catch and shoot, you know, wing and mm -hmm. wants to be like a three and D guy, and he's going to have to guard multiple positions. Well, like, you know, he's going to have to move in the frontal plane. He's going to have to switch, like, hard to big. He's going to have to do multiple things on the court that, like, mm -hmm. all you're doing is just, like, oh, focusing and having tunnel vision of what's going on in the weight room. You might miss a big component of something from a preparation standpoint that could help that athlete and help the coach um, and how they want to utilize that athlete in certain tactical mm -hmm. situations. So I do think you know, maybe being involved is one thing, but at, at least having a concept of what the coach wants, I think is definitely a low hanging fruit in, in the modern performance of a basketball player, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I think uh, you put it beautifully, right? Just like being in more communication, not necessarily involvement. That would be, I think it would be a cold day in hell to see a strength coach drop uh, an inbound play. Yeah, <laughs> Hopefully yeah. <not. laughs> You're not doing any baseline out of bounds, but you know it, there may be a certain movement pattern or a certain yeah. screen or a certain angle that an athlete or position an athlete has to get in, and like you know you you have to understand that and know you know what what the expectation is there you know mm -hmm. absolutely uh, and talking a little bit more about your time just about um or just at Arkansas um like you said Mike Anderson who, I mean, I actually watched, I think it was the first time I ever watched like a basketball documentary. Um, I think it was 30 for 30, 40 minutes of hell. And I had never really paid attention to Arkansas basketball before that. And my dad, you know, he kind of grew up on that basketball, that style of play. So watching that play out and then obviously like doing my research and seeing you were there. Um, one, obviously Mike Anderson is a great human being, but he's very demanding, right? During competition. So I can only imagine what it was like in practice and training. So you talk uh, as much as you can a little bit about that experience like what that preparation looked like in terms of you know maybe the weight room and practices especially because um you know we're talking a little bit more about load management these days but what that looked like during your time at Arkansas working with Mike Anderson yeah no that's a good question you know Coach Jay really worked the, the kids hard and had a high level of expectation and standard you know in his practices and how he ran ran things um you know from my perspective I wanted to kind of support him and however I could by, you know, a keeping the athletes available, but be like, you know, are they robust enough to handle the demands of mm -hmm. those intense practices? Right. So my job I viewed is like, get them to the line in October. And it was different back then because the rules were different. Like, you know, when I yeah. first started, you'd get eight 
hours in the summer practice didn't start till I believe October 15th. So you mm-hmm. have like a, some good time to like really physically prepare these kids. So my, my goal was like, you know, day one of practice, are they ready to go for coach? And then throughout the competitive season, can I just keep these kids available for practices and games to where, you know, he's not going to have to modify anything, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, coach, coach really, um, you know, had a high level of expectations, but I'll say, you know, volume was definitely built into the program and our kids were never out of shape. Um, I, I viewed my job as like refining mechanics and keeping an mm-hmm. eye when they needed to be, you know, that that's kind of how I viewed my job more or less, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And just like you talked about, like, you know, things are, are different now, but just um, looking at it through a lens of, Hey, you know, I want to make sure you're ready day one to, to hit the court, you know, and whatever, you know, Anderson asks you to do, like, you should be able to do it. Um, and just being able to like have those conversations with coaches, I kind of wanted to ask you, I've, I've, we about think all as coaches kind of been in a situation where we've had a sport coach, head coach, whoever, um, Hey, like I have these expectations and potentially maybe having the conversation about what goes on in the weight room and training, um, not necessarily conflict, but being able to sit down and come to an agreement of what that should look like. Uh, and it doesn't have to be with a coach, coach A, but have you ever kind of been in that situation where uh, coaches have these expectations and you kind of almost had to kind of meet in the middle because you had maybe another lens or another way of that you wanted to program? Have uh, you ever had a situation where you kind of had to come to that agreement? Yeah, you know, I think it's always a compromise, but it's based on relationships. I think, uh, mm-hmm. you know, having a good relationship with the head coach is really, really paramount. So, you know, they'll tell you what they want. You just got to kind of listen. Right. And it mm-hmm. may not be uh, completely aligned with like what you think, but there's always mm-hmm. a common ground, right? Like you're always trying to put the athlete in the best position to be successful and win mm-hmm. games. And uh, yeah. So as long as your vision's aligned in that aspect, I think uh, you can kind of come up with, you know, some, some common ground there, you know, but as far as, as far as the, the communication aspect, man, I, 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 during my five years there, you know, coach was super professional. He definitely, um, you know, heard me out on a lot of things. So I really mm-hmm. appreciate my time. And that was very, very valuable in my development as a performance coach down there. For sure. For sure. Yeah. No, watching them, just watching the way those, those, those guys played, it was, it was crazy because I'm just like, there's no way they, they put this the whole game, but no, he, you know player one all the way down to the 12th man you're expected to give everything you have and they were I mean the shape the the preparation those guys went through to to be in that position it was always crazy so I always wanted to ask about that once I saw that on your resume Um, but talking a little bit more about you know your time in Philly and where you kind of got into biomechanics I actually wanted to ask one you know what kind of pushed you into biomechanics yeah you know I think uh, a lot of the, the driving force behind that was actually, um, you know, track and field. So there was a post-collegiate mm-hmm. athlete who wound up in my weight room at Arkansas as a track and field athlete. Um, and his name was Wallace Spearman. And he his his personal best of 19.65 in the 200 meters is still top 10 all time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I... I had the opportunity to work with him more so in the twilight or later in his career. So like, I was like, man, I better get this one right. You know, we were training for Olympics and world championships and all those things together. 
And, uh, you know, there's a guy that I invited on campus that does consulting with a lot of professional teams uh, named Boosh Schneider. His name kept popping up as far as like one of the best speed power coaches in, in the business. So I was like, man, I better I better figure this shit out and I better mm-hmm. like figure out like how to help Wallace and put him in, in the best position possible. So I, I invited Coach Boo on campus and uh, I had all the weight room data. I was really getting into force platform analysis and velocity-based mm-hmm. training. And I, I'd been training Wallace for multiple years at that point. So I was like, all right, I'll invite this guy up here and we'll talk about force plate numbers and squat velocities and tendos and all, all this stuff. And it'll be great, right? Um, well, c- come to find out that, um, you know, he did not care at all, right? So I showed him all of this data and mm-hmm. just like, well, what is his projection angles out of the block and i was like well i don't know well what's his flight to contact time in his dry phase and i said well i don't know what's his pelvic position you know during speed endurance qualities the last you know 50 meters of his race uh these were all questions that he asked me that i just didn't have a good answer to so he Mm -hmm. was like man you better end up out on that track and that will be your kind of roadmap those mechanics to you know what would be best for his his, you know stimulus in the weight room so I think that was the driving force. And that's really, you know, when I got into, okay, angles coming out of the block, what's the setup looking like, you know, what's the trunk lean and some triple acceleration coming around the bin. Uh, so all of these things, it's just mechanics. And uh, the, the variability in track and fields really low. Like you're just really just trying to, for his sport or his event, uh, just run a fixed distance in 200 meters as quickly as mm-hmm. possible. So for, for me, in my mind, I was like, well, his mechanics really have to be on point and have to be efficient if he's going to be successful in competition. So that's really, you know, kind of led me down to some of the paths that I'm currently still uh, researching today, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And um, just kind of touching on your experience, like you said, it's, it's almost like, you know, you're, he was asking me these questions and you're kind of like, okay, cool. Like you even said, I got to figure this shit out. So just doing your due diligence and, and going back and getting that education, getting that experience, and then, you know, parlaying that into, into Philly. So, you know, kind of following up on that, once you got to Philly and you're working and you got that experience in biomechanics, um, and I believe you said you were in Philly for about, I think you said five years or am I mistaken? Uh, uh, two, two and a half years. Two and a half. Okay. Um, and then once you got into Philly, working in biomechanics, you know, what are some things and in leading into your book that you kind of saw where you could make that impact and you could have, you know, a role in helping the, the players out? Because as we know, you know, basically basketball players, especially at the elite level of the NBA, they're, I've heard Corey Schlesinger call them giraffes uh, with clown shoes on, right? Long levers, long arms, uh, at times long legs, you know, depending on their injury history, you know, ankle mobility is an issue, hip mobility. Um, so when you came in and you're seeing these things and you're, you know, having this coach's eye, what are some, I guess, <laughs> what are some areas of impact that you felt you could come in and make with the athletes that you're working with at the professional basketball level? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question. I think, you know, it goes back to just being in the right place at the right time, you know? Um, so I had the opportunity to kind of build out models and projects with guys like Todd Wright into North Pandolf. And what I noticed mm-hmm. about them, they were the first strength coaches or performance coaches I've been around that like watch film very intently. Right. Like mm-hmm. they would, they would watch games and like really break down the mechanics of their sport. 
Um, so that that's something that kind of resonated me with me. And I was like, well, can, how can I take my speed power background and all the work I did with Wallace and maybe apply it to, you know, our sport and basketball? Like it, it's going to be tough, right? Like it's going to mm-hmm. be because there is variability in how, you know, Chris Paul sets a ball screen up is completely different than Damian Lillard. That's completely mm-hmm. different from Terry Rozier. But, you know, when you study the best athletes in the world in our game, there's some common denominators, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, my, my thought process was just to keep, uh, keep your eyes open and your ears open and just learn as much as possible. Um, the other thing is learning from the athletes, man. There was a lot of, we had a lot of vets on, um, you know, both rosters I got to work with both in DC and Philly that taught me so much about preparation and how they see the game. And those guys are savants, man. They've chunked so many situations mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, scenarios in their brain over the years, you know, a guy that's played in the league 10 years is a brilliant, brilliant mind as far as basketball. Mm-hmm. Like, it's unbelievable how smart those guys are. I, I think that's the one thing that uh, that people don't realize is just how brilliant those athletes are just relative to their craft, man. They're, right. they're super smart. So I, I think I just right place, right time, just being around guys like Todd and Tador and Cliff um and jesse and david martin uh but but also you know learning from the athletes was big too you know they you know um though those guys really taught me a lot as far as just like preparation and how they saw the game right right and it's just like you you even mentioned i think um so chris paul is funny enough you know one of my favorite players to actually listen um listen to whenever he does a podcast or any type of interview where he actually breaks down the game and mm-hmm. he's talking about, you know, what he's looking at coming off the floor, coming up the floor and even little things like, you know, which side he's taking the ball out because that's going to influence which hand the ball is going to be in. And when he comes up to pick and roll, what he's going to see and, you know, players right hand, left handed, like where they're going to be on the court. And they're, and it's like all these nuances that, you know, from the average fan standpoint, you know, kind of looking at that and you're just thinking, OK, they're just taking the ball out, whatever. Um, but they're like you said, they're masters of the craft and that's not even going to the more of the the personal own skill development. Um, so no, I think that that's amazing. And I actually didn't know that, you know, just um, Todd and, and Todor and, and everyone just watching film. Um, you know, I always watch film just in general because I just love basketball and I find it interesting, but I, I actually didn't know as strength and conditioning professionals, performance coaches, they're actually watching the film to break down the mechanic, the mechanics and help that influence their training programs. Yeah, no, that was something that always resonated with me. And those guys are like brilliant in their own rights. I think, uh, you know, I don't think Todd or Tador really get enough credit for advancing the field um, in, in a way that, uh, yeah, really just kind of changed uh, a lot of things as it relates to basketball performance, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, but even kind of touching on some of those things that, you know, you're kind of talking about in your book. So, for instance, even little things like I, I know you mentioned like curvilinear sprinting in your book. And I I had been exposed to it before. Um, I believe it was another strength training book. I think it was basketball strength training. I think it came out in 2020. Um, actually, my old boss actually helped co-write that, Josh Bonatal. Shout out if you're listening. But I know they mentioned it in that book as well. And, you know, it actually sitting back, it makes sense because, you know, as a athlete in general, like your your the defense is going to try to stop you from scoring, essentially, right? And so very rarely is going to be a straight line, you know, to it from the basket. 
Um, but as you reference it, you know, it's becoming more popular in speed training and basketball. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about, you know, maybe in details in your own wording of why there should be more of a priority, maybe necessarily like adding curvilinear sprint training to basketball and sport in general? Yeah, no, that, that's a really good question. I think, uh, you know, curvilinear speed and mechanic development is important for basketball for obvious reasons, but the mm. chapter where it really stood out was just dribble handoffs, right? Like you look at the best DHO um, recipients and how they create space offensively. Well, there's a certain amount of centripetal acceleration that they're creating, right? Mm. And there's a certain amount of trunk lane. So the angle that we measured out as far as their lean was usually around 64 degrees as they accepted a dribble handoff. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas two things, the limiting factors for not creating space are either not building up the prerequisite velocities in the mm. entrance to the dribble handoff, or you were too upright, right? Like you didn't have enough lean on the curve to accept the dribble handoff and create space out of that. And there was two ways, you know, uh, a lot of guys, there was two or three that stood out that would like use it to step back and get an open three. But there's a lot of guys that would want to take the handoff and go north south and attack the defender's mm -hmm. shoulder downhill. So I think um, the, there's, again, common denominators among the world's best. None of them jogged into that. All of them set it up. All of, none of them took, um, you know, accepted the dribble handoff just straight up. There were certain trunk leans and curve mm -hmm. involved with that. So, again, you know, there's one team in particular that had three of the top ten dribble handoff performers that year, um, and they used DHOs a lot. And it's even more – prevalent now in the college game than it's ever been right so i i think training that movement pattern is really really mm -hmm. important uh particularly as it relates to um the ability to create space offensively yeah no absolutely and it's like as you said you know it's, it's funny enough like i don't have the, the, the book open but just like i can picture it in my head you know it's, it's little things obviously like sport coaches head coaches say like all right shoulder to shoulder come off that tight but it's funny, you know, like even drills like um, I forgot, I think it's called like the snake drill uh, where you have those set of cones and you're kind of like basically essentially just making those those S, yeah. S curls around the cones. Um, yeah. Little things like that. Are, are, are those some of the things that maybe you would program possibly into like training program to kind of start to uh, create that stimulus in the training training uh, training back there? area yeah you, you know I, I think it's like anything so linear speed mechanics you might start with you know projection ground contacts flight to contact time um you know pelvic posture so you might start with some a skips you might skip the mm. high distance you might increase the velocity at which you do so and then get into acceleration mechanics i don't i don't think uh you know curvilinear speed in the development of so should be like you know a binary thing right like you can mm. do it very similar to like you would in having progressions as it mm. relates to acceleration or linear speed, right? So it's like, maybe you start out with like an S skip, or maybe you start out with a circle skip, and then you add some velocity, mm. maybe you add some height to it, and then maybe you add some trunk lean, and then maybe, you know, you add some like perturbation with the defender, and they got to like kind right. of fuck around. So, so again, like, I think there should be a very natural progression, but yeah, I don't think it's very... Yeah. It's not it's not any different from your progressions and what that might look like from a linear speed mechanics. I just don't think people, you know, emphasize it as much as they should within like or, or prioritize it as much as they should within training, you know. 
Yeah, absolutely. And no, that's that's actually beautiful. Um, just like you kind of talked about, like being able to to even progress, you know, like an S curve, right? Like even going to to skips and then getting some trunk lean, increasing velocity, and then adding the perturbations where you, yeah, like you said, just maybe have someone on their hip, just pushing them, bumping them, whatever the case is. Like it's funny because, like you said, we we typically do that with like north south speed development, but even then, it's just like okay, well, this is how we can be a little bit flexible or more innovative in terms of kind of progressing this. And then, like I said, just developing that aspect of it. Um, and then when you, even when you kind of came into, you know, Philly and just working in basketball players in general, once you had that biomechanics background, um, not sure if this is a, a general question or how general this is, but when you were working with some of the athletes uh, in the NBA, whether it was Philly or whether it was the, the Washington or wherever you have, um, a lot of times, like with younger players, their training age is super low, right? Because now they're one and dones. Um, maybe they didn't even lift in high school. So the first time they were exposed to any training was in college. Um, maybe they did it for a year or two. Uh, but maybe what were a couple of things, maybe a couple of inefficient mechanical positions or just uh, variables that you saw basketball players that had low training ages coming into the NBA had that you had to address? Yeah, I, I think the, the biggest thing is just playing through upright, like even mm. more so in, in, you know, pick and roll guards and perimeter players and bigs, like, you know, amplitude and ranges of motions that you have to get in to be an elite level, like, you know, pick and roll guard. I mean, the projection angles coming out of a ball screen for elite level uh, guards that are attacking the rim are about 47 to 48 degrees. So I say that because like the optimal projection angle out of like a block start or in projectile mm -hmm. physics is 45, right? So to give it context, guys that are north south, like, you know, you mentioned Chris Paul, those guys are really low and those guys mm -hmm. are really projecting at very like uh, acute angles. So I think that's the biggest one. And then the physicality too, uh, is mm -hmm. particularly in the post is like, you know, players just don't absorb and apply contact properly when it relates to like player on player. Right. So they don't mm -hmm. they don't understand like, OK, like in post defense. Right. The optimal base angle is, you know, 48 degrees. Right. So like having a really wide base and a really low degree of knee and hip flexion um, mm -hmm. is really important as it relates to defending in the post or defending ball screens or you know, um, posting up. So anything related to player on player contact. Um, so that along with just the amplitude of movement are probably the two biggest mechanical factors mm -hmm. that, I, that I see are limiting as it relates to athletes with young training ages, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And not even to, to turn this into, um, you know, any, anything outside of kind of like the mechanical aspect, but do you feel like maybe some of those limiting factors with, like you said, just playing lower, uh, do you feel like maybe that, that those are issues with uh, ankle mobility issues and in turn, like they're kind of just playing more upright or is it just kind of more just motor learning? Uh, I think it's a combination of both. I think there's there's definitely structural issues with athletes. Uh, mm -hmm. no, no doubt about that. But also, I think there's probably some central limitations as well. Like you mentioned, motor learning or maybe they just they've gone away with playing a certain way uh, mm -hmm. over time that you just can't do in the NBA. And I, I, I think, I think there's a big misconception that like, you just got to run around out there and that's extra effort and you're trying really hard. Mm -hmm. Um, in our studies, we found that the best players actually move the least, but they're most, they're the most economical with their movement. Meaning right. like if you watch LeBron or Kawhi, 
or any of these great players. Like, I mean, they're standing in the corner for the most part, but they just know when and how to strike um, mm-hmm. at high velocity, right? So I, I think I think that's also another misconception. It's just like, oh, let's like put in an effort and just run around and like, no, nah, it's like move with a purpose and move with intent. So from that standpoint, I do think there is like a motor learning or at least uh, a knowledge of where to be on the court is so important. Yeah. And you actually mentioned it. It's funny because what came to mind was 2018 LeBron when he played the Warriors and, you know, obviously he got swept, but I mean, he was playing every minute doing everything on the court. And I remember distinctly they, they said LeBron, I think had the least amount of miles, but I mean, the dude was averaging like 40 and 10. And <laughs> yeah. like, like come on man like he's doing everything and so of course he's gonna pick pick his spots because there's no way at that intensity yeah. at that efficiency he's gonna be able to last if he's 100 percent every single possession no doubt and, and that's pretty consistent across the board where the best players typically move the least or at least the most economical but the best players also have the capability to move the fastest so i think there's a huge like discrepancy so less total distance but greater peak speeds oh yeah 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 for sure um and then obviously like uh you know with your background i know you know you you kind of had that that exposure to biomechanics because of it almost basically out of necessity in a sense obviously it's still the passion and the drive but um for other strength coaches you know who may necessarily have had that access that exposure who potentially want to start understanding more of the biomechanics, let's say specifically for basketball, sport in general, but let's say basketball, um, where, I guess, in your, you know, your advice or your opinion, uh, would you kind of just have them start? That way they can begin to learn a little bit more of the biomechanics of sport and maybe just the human body, and then kind of parlay that into their sport. That way they can begin to make, you know, more informed decisions in practice or competition or even training. Yeah, there, there's two books that are inspirational to mine, and one is uh, The Mechanics of Athletics by Jeffrey Dyson, and the other one is Biomechanics of Sport Technique by James Hay. I think those are two really essential texts of people that really are looking to get into biomechanics for sport. Um, but also, and not a shameless plug here, like, uh, you know, I feel like we did a really good job of really taking some complex, you know, uh, topics in basketball mechanics and refining it to some some simplicity there Mm -hmm. so if like you know you work in basketball and are interested in biomechanics like you know pick it up and i I would love the feedback because uh ryan and i are actually starting the second edition here pretty soon um so i I think those are all good resources and good places Mm -hmm. to start um and even if you don't work in basketball i think you know, any of those texts would be a good place to kind of refine your skill set, or at least maybe, um, you know, trigger some knowledge to more granular um, mm-hmm. topics within within that domain. Oh, yeah, no, for sure. And by all means, like plug, plug away. Um, for anyone listening, I'm actually, uh, I borrowed Adam's book, but now I was like, I told him before we got on, I had to buy it because it was just that damn good. Uh, so please, like, I'm going to, uh, again, plug this at the very end. Um, but yeah, no, for sure. I think the biggest thing is being able to start. I was able, I was lucky enough to start, take a biomechanics course. I mean, I don't know how long ago, uh, but it was pretty much very introductory. Uh, so for anyone coming in fresh, you know, I, I think you do simplify it, like you said, to a very basic understanding, but also still keeping it high level enough um, where experienced coaches can gain something from it. Um, but also those that may not necessarily work in basketball, just 
you know, may want to start some work where, you know, from a more human perspective. Um, also appreciate that plug as well. Um, and then, you know, a couple more questions. You know, I appreciate you again, Adam, for, for listening to me uh, chat away and ask you these questions. But one thing I did want to ask is for you personally, in your opinion, how much priority should mechanics play uh, when you're working with athletes, right? Different levers, sizes. Uh, how much of that should we focus on getting ideal mechanics versus um, training more so for loaded performance? Like, is there kind of more of a priority on either or, or is it kind of like a spectrum? No, I think mechanics should always proceed like load in, in my mm. opinion. Um, so doing it proper, but also finding what's proper for that individual. Cause like, you know, the way, you know, Rudy Gobert does something will be completely different uh, than Terry Rozier, right? It looking mm. on the spectrum of like, you know, pulley and lever systems. So I, I think I think finding, you know, a always technique is always the most important thing in my opinion. But B is like finding what's optimal relative to that individual, right? So there's not mm. really one perfect way to do anything in in sport, particularly basketball, but what you can say is like, what is optimal for, for that individual athlete? And I, I think mm. you know, creating that standard is really important or just finding what those thresholds or bandwidths are. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I've experienced that myself where I've had, you know, like you have a point guard who's 5'10", and then you've got, you know, the center that's 6'9", 6'10", and, you know, different training ages and things like that. It's just like, his squat right like his squat may, is probably gonna look a little bit different maybe i'll load him with a zercher squat versus getting the point guard more of a back squat just because i still want to load them uh, mm -hmm. but again like those techniques are gonna look a lot different and maybe what's more optimal for this center this big versus this guard um no i agree 100 what you said yeah no i think yeah just finding relative to the individual what uh what is the most important thing and what does that look like from a mechanical standpoint, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Adam, you know, I appreciate you for, for jumping on the podcast. Before we wrap up and, and hop off, I want to make sure, again, please, by all means, plug away. One, where can the listeners buy your book? Where is it available? And then two, if anyone does want to get in touch with you, whether a podcast, just to chop it up with you um, or give the feedback for the book. Uh, where can they find you? Yeah, no, those are good questions. As it relates to uh, the book, uh, ultimateathleteconcepts.com. Um, it's Yosef Johnson's website, and he has a, a library of just amazing books. Uh, you know, all of Fergus Conley's stuff, Fergushansky. Um, you know, he just came out with a Comerlo Bosco translation from Italian. So really good stuff. Uh, but there or Amazon, they, they can order the books. And actually, Ryan and I, um, Ryan Richmond, my co-author, we're actually in the works um, creating a certification for it, our like module. Oh, perfect. Yeah. So, so it's with uh, Stronger Experts, uh, a group out of Montreal, Canada. They do a lot of Brian Mann, um, VBT type stuff and certifications, but we're doing it for basketball performance. So I think that's a good place to start if you mm -hmm. want to learn more about the mechanics of the sport. And Ryan's going to come in on the tactical side and do film breakdown, um, look at, you know, different situations, you know, as far as tactics and, you know, switching guard to big or like, you know, icing or downing ball screens versus like hedging over and what that might look like. And then I come in with the mechanics of it. And then I'm going to talk about, okay, 
you know, how do we program frontal plane movement within the weight room and how does that affect ball screen situations? So I think it's, you know, it, it's, it, it's going to be kind of an all encompassing technical, mm -hmm. tactical performance uh, kind of modules, but I think it's super beneficial for really, you know, anybody working in the field of basketball. Oh, hundred percent. As soon as you said certification, I, that was already like writing down the website. Oh, but yeah, yeah. and that's uh, through, uh, stronger experts, and it's a group out of Montreal, Canada. They do a great job. Um, they've they've had some VBT certifications, and it's geared mainly towards strength coaches. But we really want to hit, um, you know, and try to help uh, basketball technical tactical coaches. You know, it, even like you know myself when I was a D three coach, like wouldn't would have loved this certification because I was having to do everything: film breakdown. We'll have that you know, uh, you know, talent identification, we'll have that, you know, weight room menu items and periodization, we'll have that. So uh, I think it could be beneficial for and help a lot of coaches within the field of basketball. Yeah, 100%. Um, and I'll make sure I put all that in the show notes as well. That way, anyone that's interested, please uh, reach out to Adam. Uh, as far as social media, you know, uh, do you prefer just LinkedIn? I know I hit you on LinkedIn, but yeah, want that, to reach out to you, I can reach you. Yeah, no, that's fine. And really, I'd love feedback on the book or the podcast. It's just my mm -hmm. name at gmail.com. And just shoot me an email is probably the best way. So adampetway at gmail.com. Shoot me an email and, uh, you know, I will get back to you and, you know, whatever that looks like. So, um, yeah, I would love feedback and, you know, constructive feedback on the book as we build out the second edition or if they want to reach mm -hmm. out and just talk training, you know, um, just, yeah, just shoot me an email. Absolutely. Well, Adam, I appreciate you so much for taking the time out for giving out all this game. Uh, when that second edition comes out and when that cert comes out, I'm going to have to for sure get you back on the podcast to, to talk about that, plug that again. But um, no, I definitely want to stay connected after this episode. And like I said, I'm just, I'm thankful again that you, you spent your time. I want to make sure all my listeners, again, basketball, <laughs> biomechanics, Go get it. I got to get it. It's literally in my car right now. I'm about to hit purchase in a second. But Adam, again, I appreciate you for taking the time out top on this episode. Awesome. Well, hey, Xavier, it's really uh, an honor to be on. And uh, man, love the work you're doing. So I really appreciate you having me. Thank you for listening to the Basketball and Barbells podcast. I really hope you all got major value from today's episode. Please leave a rating and review of the show and don't forget to tune in to the next episode.